I think it might just be time for us to stop talking about pro sports coaches. I mean, yes, obviously I'm being hyperbolic saying that there are some fantastic journalists and analysts and content creators that excel at breaking down the X's and O's, giving us a glimpse into the mind of a coaching staff. I love that stuff. But in general, if there's something that sports fans and analysts both fail at, it's the why. There's a tendency to fall victim to what I call, well, I didn't make this up, but results-based analysis. The winners, they never got lucky. They had the will to win. And the losers, they didn't just lose. They had some fatal flaw that betrayed them that was always there and we just never saw it before. When you're starting from the conclusion and then working backwards to see the process, that would be considered illogical in other pursuits in the world of science, the world of mathematics. But in sports, it's taken for granted. And nowhere is this more true than the coach. The fact of the matter is, the average fan knows very little about how their sport is played at all, and even less about how their team operates behind closed doors. Since we never know how much coaches actually do, we tend to default towards what happened. If they win, they're good. If they lose, they suck. Instead of playing this game, let's just opt out of the conversation entirely. Will I potentially break this rule in this very episode? It's possible. But don't judge me on my results. Judge me on my intent. And I intend to introduce you to another episode of High Floor, Low Ceiling. Hello and welcome to another exciting uh, labor suspended edition of high floor, low ceiling. Griffin, you you're going on strike. Is that correct? Yeah, that's why we're over Zoom this week. I refuse to come into the studio to uh, in solidarity with my brothers in the Major League Baseball Players Association. I'm I'm staying out. Yes, we've been locked out of our usual recording studios. We're once again on Zoom. Uh, Thank you to everyone who listened to our episode last week with Clem McConnell. Uh, Things got pretty, pretty wild there. I I feel like I don't have many memories of that record, but. uh, No, I I think it's a, it's a nice coincidence that our first episode that was entirely about baseball was also the episode that never seemed to end. That was very thematically appropriate, I think. But we love talking to Clem. That's what Clem brings you. And, uh, and frankly, I love it. Even if the listener doesn't Uh, Griffin, I, I, as I like to say, the blogs are a Twitter about uh, this boycott that you have going on. Speaking of disputes and uh, and walkouts, this Christmas boycott you have going on. What's uh, what's the upshot of this? Well, for those who do not know, I work part time at a popular Canadian grocery store chain. Uh, I'm not going to say which one in the interest of not getting sued. But basically, we have not started the Christmas music yet, even though the last time I was there it was November 30th. I was blown away. Um, and so I made a little joke on the high floor, low ceiling Twitter uh, that we would not release our Christmas episode until my grocery store started playing the Christmas music. And oh, people did not. People were heartbroken, I think. People yeah, are really, I think the Halloween episode was a big hit. People are looking forward to the Christmas episode. So uh, to my manager, if you're listening, which you're not, uh, <laughs> better yeah. start playing that music or else they'll be coming for you. Yeah, you got ratioed. I think it was about 250 replies, 14 likes. <laughs> um, but hopefully we'll we'll get that sorted. 
Uh, we have some some great segments, I will say, line up for today. And if you liked last episode, which featured both baseball and guests, you'll be super excited about today. Uh, we have yet another returning guest to the podcast. Uh, it's someone I like to call the heir of legitimacy uh, for what he brings to the show. From sportsillustrated.com, Mitch Bannon is back on the podcast. Welcome, Mitch. Thanks for having me. It sounds like I missed a hell of an episode yesterday, and I do kind of agree. I think for Griffin's uh, Christmas music lockout, I think he should give them till December 1st. I feel like it's kind of reasonable to make the switch at that point. So if you're there on December 1st, still no Christmas music, you can start really making a ruckus. Well, the thing is, I agree in the normal world, December 1st is absolutely the natural starting point, but this is the world of retail. I can't like the rule is supposed to be november 12th you wait until remembrance day to give your uh, respect and then you make the switch that that's the unofficial rule but someone's really holding out i can imagine there's like a big dispute going on at the corporate headquarters they've got like one store lighting up on their board that's like they're still not playing christmas music we go straight from poppies to mariah carey exactly <laughs> yes shout out to the troops uh well we've alluded and mariah. to and well the real uh Who's really doing the work for our country, you know? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Don't cancel me. Uh, As we have alluded to a couple of times, Mitch, the big news of the day is the MLB lockout becoming official as of uh, of midnight, I guess, more or less. Uh, We talked about it a little bit with Clem last week, but as someone who is, you know, reporting on baseball, thinking about baseball on a daily basis, how does it feel to sort of be be foraging into these maybe uncertain and maybe dry times uh, for for stories and things like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because we all knew this was coming. This is not really surprising at all. But waking up today or more like midnight last night, seeing the Players Association and the ownership kind of putting out their statements at 1201, I'm like, okay, this is real. Like this is actually happening. And you kind of don't understand the gravity of it until they start wiping player pages on MLB.com and and it starts really kind of getting nasty. Manfred just got off a press conference where it, it seemed very real. And so I have a list of stories I'm going to work on over the next couple of weeks. We'll see how long I can last on that list before I really start scraping the bottom of the barrel. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I'm, I'm ready for at least a few weeks of lockout. Yeah. There, there is always that degree of gamesmanship that goes on with, the statements coming out and sort of trying to manipulate the favor of the press. It seems to me, uh, at least, you know, from a, from maybe a bit of an outsider perspective, it doesn't feel like either side really has like the strong moral high ground. I mean, obviously it seems like the, the biggest issues is, you know, raising the minimum salary and players wanting to hit free agency sooner. I think there's a tendency for the average fan to maybe, feel a little bit like it's like oh like they already have all this money and they're asking for more money but do, does it feel like you know it's sort of like an even playing field right now so to speak in terms of uh, that sort of media manipulation I feel like it is right now but that's because neither of the sides were being particularly nasty before this morning really or before last night at midnight uh, they kind of played nice they acted like they were still trying to get the agreement done they were meeting for a few minutes at a time in Texas which is kind of how collective bargaining works. I don't think people should read into those meeting times too much. Um, But yeah, I don't think either of them have really dove into their war chest to trying to get the people on their side yet. I think that's what's going to happen in the next couple, seven to 10 days is you try to seize the media, you try to seize 
the public perception. And I think we've already seen them start to do that. I think you're right that you would think um, the fans usually side with the players, uh, but they know at the end of the day that the lock or that the ownership is the ones who really have the power to, to keep the players locked out. So it's kind of, it's a test of fans like we've seen in every other sport and every other lockout is do you kind of side with the players who are the, the people love throwing out the millionaires versus billionaires line, or do you side with the ownership because you, you just want baseball back. And so it, it kind of depends how long this thing uh, drags out for, but I think for now, no one really has that high ground. Right. If you had to guess, would you say that there's a chance that like, regular baseball whether it be spring training or pitchers and catchers reporting is impacted by this or will this just be a couple weeks of snafu how bad do you think this could get yeah it's something my my boss texted me that like <laughs> 35 minutes ago being like are we gonna like not actually have 162 games and I said I'd be shocked I feel like this is just kind of setting up for uh and this is gonna look like a bad take when in six weeks we're still like very much in a lockout but we're setting up for just kind of, they negotiate for a couple weeks, the holiday season happens, they come back to the table and they try to figure it out before pitchers and catchers reports. That seems like the logical thing to do for both sides, but a labor dispute, especially when there's this much money involved, rarely kind of happens logically. So I'd say there's a chance. I would be very much surprised. Like the second pitchers and catchers are supposed to be reporting and spring training starting, the heat will really get on them. And I think they'll try to figure it out because then the reality of, missing paychecks starts to come in uh but yeah i would guess no at this point but maybe that's just me being optimistic i I was gonna say do you think that there's like is there a chance that we see a real change to baseball as a result of this lockout in 2022 whether it's a universal dh or expanded playoffs like are are those kind of serious changes to the product that we see on the field on the table in this oh yeah i would like i'm kind of functioning under the assumption that those are both going to happen um, I think it's kind of interesting. You look at a team like the Blue Jays, who obviously I'm the most familiar with and what they're doing. And everyone's talking like, what are they going to do next? Like if they raise the playoffs to seven teams in the American league, do the Jays like really need to add that much more? Like, it, I feel like teams are kind of going to wait and see what happens because there's going to be very significant changes to, uh, the on-field product and, and service time. We, uh, we mentioned at the beginning there, but if they knock the service time, down a year or two team building kind of gets changed pretty drastically and who you're banking on in your window uh, could really change. So I'm in terms of DH and playoffs, I'm fairly certain at least one of those will change. And there's going to be a lot of other minor changes that impact the game as well. Yeah, it, it does. From what I'm reading, at least it does seem like the players are willing to, to make some concessions in that regard. So it, it does feel like, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel as bitter as some, previous lockouts and other sports you know it's been about 10 years since we've had a lockout but let's start talking a little bit about uh that the free agency things that we've seen so far we have seen a lot of spending uh so far already this year do you think that there is any correlation between you know teams put it being willing to put up that big money uh, earlier in the season maybe than we usually see and this lockout that has now you know come around and obviously we won't be seeing any signings anytime soon I think there's kind of like three factors. One is kind of the conspiracy theory that I don't necessarily buy into that, uh, that the league office was telling teams to spend so we can put up this big number of dollars spent and like use that as a negotiation (laughs) chip. Like, Hey, look, we just spent $1.7 billion. You can't complain that you're not getting paid. 
I don't necessarily buy that. Uh, it's more the other two factors, which is the teams want to have something done. They don't want to sit with nothing done. And you look at a team like the Yankees, their fan base seems to already be kind of freaking out because they haven't done anything. And so now they have to uh, survive another two months with that fan base still freaking out because they haven't done any, anything. And also from the player's side, you look at the majority of the types of players who have signed and it's been starting pitchers and some relief pitchers, some some big name uh, position players like Semyon and Seager. But for the most part, it's been pitchers and catchers. And those are the guys who have to report basically right at the beginning of February. So those are the guys who, if the lockout drags out, are going to need to know where they're going, are going to want to have their families set up. Uh, for their spring training homes, wherever they're staying as soon as possible after the lockout. So I think those were the guys who were the most motivated to get a deal done. Right, exactly. And and we have started to see, uh, as you sort of alluded to, some of those big dominoes start to fall, uh, especially as they relate to the Blue Jays. You know, Marcus Semyon headed to the Rangers along with Corey Seager. Uh, the big move for Toronto so far, obviously, Kevin Gaussman coming in on the five-year deal. Griffin, I think that a point of can maybe confusion or contention for a lot of fans was that Kevin Gaussman almost seems like he falls under the Robbie Ray profile in a lot of ways. Obviously, Robbie Ray signing a similar deal, uh, same number of years, similar amount of money with the Mariners. Uh, Gaussman, you know, he has those similar question marks about his age and about his consistency and how he was, you know, really only a great pitcher in that last year, much like Ray. What do you think the logic is there? Uh, with, you know, bringing in, sort of swapping out that guy for, you know, someone who seemed like he wanted to maybe stay in Toronto within Robbie Ray. Yeah, it's really interesting that they signed virtually identical contracts, both for five years. Robbie Ray's getting one million extra per year than Kevin Gaussman is. And we know that Kevin Gaussman's the guy that the Blue Jays have wanted for a couple off seasons now, but he's stayed in, sta- stayed in San Francisco, pardon me. Um, so, yeah, I think the question on everyone's mind is, did the Blue Jays offer these contracts to both of them and pick Kevin Gaussman? Or did Robbie Ray, did they ever really want Robbie Ray back? Did, were they serious about that? So, Mitch, I think you would have a better insight on that than me. Do you know how serious the Blue Jays actually were in the end about bringing back Robbie Ray? Was Kevin Gaussman a backup or was Ray the backup? I feel like it's less about Ray and more about Gossman. I think they went, as far as I understand it from people I've talked to and people who would definitely know, they went into the offseason with Gossman at the top of their list. He, he might not have been like the number one option. I feel like a guy like Corey Seager was actually up there, but that price point just got way too ridiculously high. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's more that they've just kind of loved Gossman for a while. They loved him. You mentioned that they've tried to get him for two years and then this was like a real opportunity. He said in his press conference yesterday that he kind of went into free agency expecting to get that call from Ross Atkins. He knew that mm. conversation was going to happen, and it's because they've showed so much interest in the past, and now he's backed up their interest. So they they know they used to know, hey, we think this guy can be this, and then he went out and did it. And so then they're like, okay, we're right. He is this. And I think they were definitely interested in Robbie Ray. Like, they were interested in Steven Matz. But I think when you're committing the longest – uh, starting pitcher free agent contract in franchise history you kind of kind of look beyond the which guy do we like more right now and I think if I were to guess the reason they went with Gosman was because they project him to be better for longer 
I think a guy like Robbie Ray, and they both kind of throw mid-90s. They have that elite secondary weapon that they throw like 45% of the time. Uh, but I think you look at Gosman's profile and that splitter just tends to age better than the fastball slider combo. Uh, I think a guy like Ray is pretty reliant on his velocity when Gosman could maybe lose a tick or two and still be good. Uh, and so I think the durability of Gosman, although Ray was also a very durable starter, and kind of those factors and projecting him out for five years is probably the difference maker. And also, I did want to mention, yes, in dollar values, those contracts look the same, but there were a couple factors that maybe skewed it a bit more. Robbie Gray has an opt-out after year three, which teams can value up to like 10 or $15 million. And then also the Jays, because they signed Gosman and lost Ray, get a draft pick, which the team mm-hmm. could value anywhere near $10 million. So when you factor both of those things in maybe it's not 115 versus 110 maybe it's 140 versus 110 and that becomes kind of a different equation yeah that compensatory pick is a great point and i did uh i I was reading you actually mitch uh talking about the the durability factor when it came to gosman uh obviously you know he is you know sort of slotting in in that race spot at the top of the rotation uh the blue jays also spent some pretty serious money on the Jose Barrios extension as well. You still have Hunjin Ryu, you still have Alec Manoa as sort of, you know, that sort of rounds out your top four. Where do you rank that among starting rotations? Like, cause you know, even though it is in many ways, like a similar rotation to the one they were sending out at the end of last year, it does feel like, you know, you sort of take a step back and and say like, wow, this is a pretty solid rotation. Like there's not, there's not a lot to dislike there, right? Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's obviously you need a number five. You probably don't want to be going into the season with Nate Pearson, but I also think we can kind of function under the assumption that they'll get that done. It might be anywhere from a one-year deal for a guy who's going to give you a 4.80 ERA or maybe an upside guy like you say Kikuchi or someone like that. Um, but I think they will address that position. And then once they do that, you look at the mix of upside and depth that they'd have in their rotation having guys like Ross Stripling and Nate Pearson as your 6-7 when they were pitching pretty important innings for the team last year. And then you have Gosman and Barrios are probably like the two best number two starters in baseball. I wouldn't necessarily say they're aces, but when you have that and the upside of Manoa, who can also kind of be that, and the upside of Ryu, who, yes, he had a bad year last year, but he was a Cy Young finalist in two of the last three seasons. So if that's your number four starter, I think you're pretty pleased. I'd say... Uh, my colleague Ethan wrote a storybook kind of comparing them to the AL East. And he said, it's basically one, a one B with the Yankees, but the Yankees rotation is kind of held up by Cole. If you take Cole out of that, it's the Jays by a mile, but I think they probably have one of the better rotations in the American league. Maybe the white Sox off the top of my head is the only one that I might take over what they have, but it's definitely a strength of the team. And when you look at the lineup, having the rotation as a strength should be the recipe for a very good team. Yeah, the the fifth starter question really intrigues me. Obviously, the Blue Jays, we've heard lots of rumblings around Yusei Kikuchi. They clearly feel like they need another one. So do you think this management team has given up on Nate Pearson as a starter? Or like, would he start the season in the bullpen, do you think? Or would they send him back down to Buffalo and still try and work on him as that more consistent starter? I think that's kind of the exact question they're probably asking themselves right now. I know at the end of the year, the term that was being thrown around by Blue Jays people was like multi-inning pitcher. 
is what they were kind of trying to phrase their plan for him as, which is like very ambiguous and doesn't tell us anything. It just means he's <laughs> not going to be a one inning reliever. Um, so I think their plan with him is to come in to spring training, see where he's at health wise and see how much they can stretch him out and then make a decision about whether we're starting this guy in the pen as a long reliever or a spot starter, or if we're going to send him down to Buffalo and just have him pitched five, six innings. Uh, I think Ideally, in an ideal world, you have him start in Buffalo, someone gets hurt, you call him up, and then he dominates like he's always supposed to. But I think you also have to be realistic about how many innings you're going to get from him. And it's probably in the low 100. So maybe that long reliever role is a better way to use him, even though they see him as a long-term starter still. Yeah, it does feel like sort of the the Nate Pearson question, I'll call it. it. It almost has been sort of put off every year for a few years now where you know injuries have played a factor obviously and it just it just feels like you know it's always about next year and what he'll do for the next year is this like the make or break season where it's maybe time for him to show show the jays what he's made of to some extent and then you know that will allow them to make an assessment about where they see him long term i think this is the make or break season for him as a starter i feel like Nate Pearson, that arm, someone's always going to give him a shot to be a reliever, even if he like get has another injury, God forbid, or it really blows up three years from now, someone's still going to be signing Nate Pearson to be a reliever in their bullpen, uh, just because he throws so hard and he has kind of the few secondary weapons you'd need. But I think if they're wanting to see him as a long-term starter, he's got to pitch innings this year. You, you can't keep having him on an innings max for the next season because he hasn't pitched the year before. He's got to eventually get up to that 75, 80, 90, break 100 innings so you can build off of that the next season. Uh, I think it's it's pretty important this year for him to do that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some other sort of things that have been flying around, some some rumors that have been in the mix. Um, I saw from, you know, not, not anyone reliable, but there was talk uh, sort of scuttlebutt among the Blue Jays intelligentsia that the Jays had interest in Chris Taylor, who ended up re-signing with the Dodgers. And then Chris Bryant was the other name that came up. Uh, Griffin, you have gone on record before talking about uh, the sort of confusion about the Jays uh, and people feeling like they needed to stock up in the middle infield. Obviously, Semyon now gone. Do you think that Chris Bryant is the guy that makes the most sense as a target above, you know, those top tier shortstops that are still in the mix? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, Carlos Correa is the best free agent available maybe in like a few years so if he comes knocking you're talking to him but I still don't think the shortstop thing really makes sense I like Chris Bryant or maybe Jose Ramirez as a trade target a lot more basically a third baseman I think is the much more obvious hole on this team you're not gonna get um, if you get extended innings out of Santiago Espinal last year he's not gonna be as good as he was this year I think a bigger sample size will doom him as a Ryan Goins type, but uh, an upgrade at third base, I think is a clear fit. And then you can try Kevin Biggio at second, where I think he fits much better than he does at third. So that to me would be the ideal way that this uh, off season goes out for the infield from this point on after we lost out to Marcus Simeon's big Texas payday. Um, and I, I, I hope we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, so Chris Bryant, I would like to see a lot more than a shortstop. Yeah. Um, and Mitch, do, do you think that 
they will be, you know, in the market. Obviously, Chris Bryant, you know, he's not going to get Carlos Correa money, but he is definitely one of, I'd say, the the better free agents still available. Do you think they are looking for a position player with that kind of salary demand or, you know, having sort of made their splash, do you think they'll maybe go for, you know, more of a, a stopgap or a utility player or something like that? Yeah, I think as far as I understand, they're kind of flexible. I think they got their pitching work done. They brought in Gossman and uh, Garcia to kind of let themselves have these six or how many weeks we're going to be locked out to look at all of the options. I think they do have limited money. They're not going to be going out and giving probably, I would guess, no more than $25 million in contracts out. And if you're given signing Chris Bryant, you're probably pushing that $25 million AAV. So I think they're kind of looking at how to fill the final rotation spot, probably one more reliever and at least one infield spot with the remaining capital. And that leads me to believe they're probably looking at trade. If you're trying to fill all three of those roles, you got to get flexible in some capacity. And the easiest way to do that is to bring in a lower AAV, higher upside option. Griffin mentioned Jose Ramirez, who would fit perfectly. If you can fill that third base hole with an elite player who's only making like $12 million, that really opens your options up. But I also think in terms of Bryant, they want to, if they're filling the third base hole, they want to get better defensively. I think the reason they're not comfortable putting Biggio there is because he didn't work out defensively there and they were asking too much of him. And I think Chris Bryant, albeit he's played a lot of third base, is not a very good defensive third baseman. So I would be a little suspicious of their interest there. I think they like the bat and they like how he's become a more flexible player recently. He's played a little corner outfield. I think he played some center field for the Giants. Um, but I think there was legit interest in Javi Baez. I think there was some very legit interest in Chris Taylor, especially because of the price point he signed at. He signed for $15 million a year. They would have loved to add that flexibility in the bat. Probably could have played a little second and third base. But yeah, I think I think we're due for a trade. It just depends on where it is. Right. Uh, and Griffin, you know, speaking of holes to fill, obviously Marcus Semien representing a rather large hole to fill uh, in the in the batting order from the infield. You seem to be uh, to have some thoughts on that contract he signed with Houston, the seven year deal. What what did you want to say about that? Yeah, with the uh, Texas Rangers, um, it's sad. I'm sad to see it. Uh, at first, when he first signed it, I assumed that the difference between the Blue Jays and the Rangers was that the Blue Jays were going to let or sorry, the Rangers were going to let Marcus Simeon play shortstop. Then the next day they signed Corey Seager. So I guess that wasn't it. So I guess it came down to a money thing. Uh, we see, I saw several people point out that Marcus Simeon is a very important figure in the union. So he was always going to take the most money because as a smart uh, businessman, he knew how important his contract was for guys lower down on the totem pole. So if I had to guess, I would just say it came down to pure dollars and the Rangers gave him a lot of pure dollars, which I do not blame them for. He's a great player. Seven years, a bit long of a contract for a guy Marcus's age, but uh, I mean, credit to them. And I, while I certainly would have loved to see him stay with the Blue Jays, I don't blame them for not matching that contract either. Yeah, Mitch, it, it does feel like the the annual value, I would think, would be something that in the area of what they were willing to pay, but the seven years is definitely, it would not be very Blue Jays like to hand it a contract like that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the perfect point. I think they would have been pushing it to go to six years. So when he gets the seventh year, it's kind of game over for them. I think 
midseason, there was talk of them offering him a contract extension. I think that was a five-year deal, four or five-year deal is what they were looking at. So when he goes to free agency and gets a seven-year deal, it's basically game over when you have all these other positions to fill. And I think if you're a Jays fan, you're kind of happy with that. I'm sure a lot of Jays fans don't love that he went to the Texas Rangers. There's some bad blood there. But I don't think you want to lose a star free agent to a contract that you were very comfortable paying. I think if you're going to lose a guy like Semyon, you want him to really have gone and got the bag. It's he pretty clearly did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm, it'll be very interesting to see how things shake out with that Rangers team, how they're geared to compete. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us for now. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully uh, we will have new things to bring you back on and discuss soon. Uh, but for now, best of luck with all of your, uh, your lockout items. Where can people read some of that, those stories that you've been cooking up for them? Sure. Yeah. You can read all about my, my Danny Jansen's the key to Kevin Gossman. I think that's going to come out later this week. Uh, and all those stories just like that. I got some relief pitcher targets. We might get a little even, even weirder than that, but you can read them at inside the blue Jays, or you can yeah, follow me on Twitter at, at Mitch Bannon and uh, feel free to like, and subscribe. <laughs> a great <laughs> follow to that Danny Jansen one. That sounds interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will, we will keep an eye out on that. Uh, but yeah, thank you for coming on Mitch. And we will be right back with some more. High floor, a low ceiling. And welcome back to high floor, low ceiling. Thank you again to Mitch Banner for joining us, Griffin. It's it's always a treat to have to have any of our guests on. You know, Clem, Mitch, another possible guest in the future. <laughs> yeah, we, we found two guests that we really like and we're sticking with them. But no, yeah, thanks again to Mitch. Uh, always enjoy having him on the air of legitimacy as you called him definitely rings true after that appearance yeah his airness we could call him uh i don't think that's taken yet so that's (laughs) but we're going to press on we're for the first time in about probably five segments now we're going to talk about something other than baseball and griffin that is uh it's another game another either or game we like to play these on high floor low ceiling and I'm calling this one Rebuild or Reload. And we're going to play this with some NFL teams. If the name is not clear to you, obviously, there are some teams, especially this season, I'd say, that are, that are at a crossroads, that are sort of at the point in their, their team development cycle where they can either say, you know, we've gotten the best we can out of this group. It's time for us to look towards greener pastures and start to rebuild the team. Or it's time to reload, it's time to invest maybe some draft capital, you know, consolidate your assets and try and make one last run with this group. So I have a few teams to throw at you and ask you whether they should rebuild or reload. And the first one of those is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, Griffin, you you have an existing bias (laughs) regarding the Steelers, I will say. I do. I'm a big Baltimore Ravens fan. So if you know your NFL, you know, I have no love for the Pittsburgh Steelers. With that being said, it's an interesting question because the position that needs the most change is the most important position in sports. But aside from that, they have a solid group in most other areas. So when you only have to change one position, you would think of that as a reload. But when it is such a drastic change away from a franchise icon and a Hall of Famer, Ben Roethlisberger, uh, as much as I hate him, 
it, it that is a massive shift for the Steelers organization. So I'm more inclined to call it a rebuild. And I think that once you start framing this in your mind as a rebuilding process, looking for a new quarterback, you then realize that although the defense is good, this wide receiver core is not going to get you anywhere of Juju Smith-Schuster and Chase Claypool there. I think have been vastly overrated by Steelers fans and the NFL landscape in general. So, and Najee Harris, as much as he looks like a good running back, the offensive line needs a ton of work in Pittsburgh. So the defense looks good, but I don't think this isn't the 2006 NFL anymore. A good defense isn't enough to get you to a Super Bowl. And for a franchise like the Pittsburgh Steelers, I think that it's Super Bowl or bust. They've won six. Um, so I would push them more towards the rebuild category. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point in terms of their sort of offensive core, because on paper, they do they do have a pretty solidly filled out offense. Like, uh, as you alluded to, obviously, their most obvious and most pressing need is at quarterback. Ben Roethlisberger is not the same player. I imagine that situation will trend trend downwards rather than upwards uh, you'd have to think uh but like I you said imagine it heading more downwards too true mon frere um but yes as as you alluded to they have Najee harris who they did spend a first round draft pick on this year they have those receivers chase claypool juju smith schuster deontay johnson as well has been quite solid but like those are all i'd say like, you know, number two, number, maybe more number three receivers uh, who are all like solid and young and establishing themselves. But, you know, none of those guys are going to really blow your top off, so to speak. Um, and then defensively, they, they've actually dropped off considerably from last year. I don't have the numbers in front of me here, but they did drop from being uh, an elite off, an elite defense last year to being, you know, more middle of the pack, if not below average. Uh, they did lose a lot of starters. They still have Minka Fitzpatrick. Remember when? Uh, remember when that was the big story with the Steelers? How they gave up that first round draft pick for Minka Fitzpatrick? Yeah, looking pretty good now. He's a hell of a defender. Yeah, and still relatively young. They have T.J. Watt, who is 27 years old. So I wasn't sure whether he quite uh, you could slot him in at the young core, but you know he he's very good. He should be good for a long time. Uh, they have Devin Bush and Alex Highsmith, two of their starting linebackers, are quite young. They might just have too much talent for a rebuild. And maybe maybe looking at the offense, like they could just go into the toilet with like a replacement level quarterback. But do you almost think that if, you know, they throw some draft picks towards like a Russell Wilson or, you know, Deshaun Watson, I hate to invoke his name, but if, if that Aaron ends up Rogers, sure. can throw him in there as well. Like, don't, don't you think that, if you do that and then maybe you get another receiver that that suddenly that team looks like pretty strong. Yeah. Well, first of all, Deshaun Watson, I can't even imagine the Steelers playing with an alleged sexual <laughs> offender at quarterback. God. Can, can you picture such a world in which that would happen? I had to get that dig in there. Big Ben, bad person. Um, but with that being said, I do see where you're coming from. If they did take the reload route, you there are a lot of good quarterbacks that should be available in the trade market this offseason, namely Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers and Deshaun Watson. Those are three franchise altering players. 
Uh, and you, you'd think that the Denver Broncos will be looking to get one, but the Pittsburgh Steelers also should be very high on that list. Um, whether they'd be able to put together a competitive package is an interesting question. But yeah, I think this is an excellently picked team for this category because you could make a good case to go either way. Uh, I would go rebuild, I think, still. I can see the reload argument, but I think that there isn't enough there on offense right now. And if you, and yeah, TJ Watt being 27 is interesting. It's not old for other sports, but for football, that's sort of getting into the back half of your career territory. So if you really want to commit to a rebuild, maybe think about getting a couple first round picks for TJ Watt, sending him off to a contender. So I think if I was in charge in Pittsburgh, I would make the tough decision to rebuild, but I could easily be convinced the other way. Yeah, I think I think what you said, mainly about the wide receivers, is is a really good point. But there is a part of me that thinks like that sees a little bit of like 2020 Tampa Bay Buccaneers in them, where it's like you get the quarterback and then the rest of the pieces kind of fall into place. But uh, let's move on to another team that is above 500. They're six and five. They were at one time two and four. So, you know, possibly looking up the San Francisco 49ers currently uh, in possession of a wild card spot. Uh, they don't have the greatest, you know, record of wins. I believe that I believe still that their win against the Rams is their only win against uh, a 500 team. Uh, I need to fact check that actually, but, uh, but regardless, uh, Oh, they have the, they have the win against the Vikings as well, who were 500 when they played them. So maybe that counts. Uh, they have, you'd think their QB of the future and Trey Lance, who we've seen a little bit of this year, they have, you know, a, a pretty solid young core, you know, especially if you compare that to the Steelers, like they have Trey Lance, they have Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk on offense. They have George Kittle, who, you know, is not young, but should continue to be good for a while. You know, I feel like tight ends tend to age pretty gracefully. And then on defense, Nick Bosa and Fred Warner is, about as good as you could ask for, for, for a one-two punch in that regard. But do you feel like, you know, it, it, it tends to come down to the offensive line for me. And uh, there's a great article I read on the ringer talking about Mac Jones's development and how sort of setting up the right pieces early on for a quarterback can be so essential to their development. And with their offensive line, you know, they have Trent Williams, but it is an aging offensive line. And so you almost feel like, you want to get that set up before you sort of hand the keys over to a new quarterback, right? Yeah. I mean, just like me, when I'm surrounded by enemies and out Uh-oh. of ammo, all the 49ers need to do is reload. Uh, this is, <laughs> Wait, this is what, a team. What is this scenario you're presenting? You're surrounded by enemies and out of ammo, implying you were shooting them? Well, what else do you do with enemies? <laughs> <laughs> I was picturing like an old West scenario where uh-huh. the bandits maybe are closing in and I've got like my little six shooter. Okay. So this they're, is, they're closing in even more. So then this I'm is, just, so this is justified <laughs> homicide. Boom, boom, boom. I, they started it in this scenario. <laughs> um, they were trying to steal my horse mm, and I've uh, had this horse for years. Yeah. I love this horse. Old Bucky. As I like to call him some classic stand your so, ground behavior. Uh, but go on. It's the old West. <laughs> we don't have our current issue with gun laws. Everyone has a gun and it's fine. Yeah. We um, all, we all agree that things were better in the old West. Yeah. 
No, but uh, the 49ers, absolutely, the offensive line is a place where you'd like to see them shore it up a bit, but that's something that can be addressed, I think, much more easily through a couple free agent signings. You spend a couple high draft picks on it, and you – I don't think it's that hard. There are so many good offensive linemen in the NFL. I don't think it's that hard to build a quality offensive line pretty quickly. I think it's much more tough to get these premium positions, and they are set there. They've got Trey Lance, who – in limited time, I think is still going to be so good. Debo Samuel, one of the most exciting and versatile offensive players in all of football, and Brandon Ayuk, a great other receiver. Yeah, like you said, Nick Bosa and Fred Warner on defense. I think that the 49ers, they're just two years removed from going to the Super Bowl. So I think that the 49ers are still in great shape despite the uh, little wobbles the last couple of years. I wouldn't be surprised if they make the playoffs this year. And then with an improved offensive line and fully handing the keys to the car over to Trey Lance, I think that the 49ers are going to be definitely relevant for a long time to come and set up very well for the future. Yeah. Like you said, I think they are set up in a good position. Like they, their timeline looks quite good in terms of, you know, still having that young offensive core that, you know, two, three years down the line, you could be running out that, that same you know receiving core and still be pretty happy with it and so it is it's very dependent on Lance's development and I agree with you I was always a big fan of his you know after reading about his exploits at uh at North Dakota State I believe it is you're Uh, telling me you didn't watch him play at North (laughs) Dakota State every Saturday I was flipping on to see him you know I think he threw a bunch of touchdowns and only threw one interception or something Anyways, you you woke up every day, every Saturday thinking, oh, boy, I've got to catch the I want to say jackrabbits. Uh, yeah, bison. I'll just the bison. <laughs> jackrabbits and bison, very similar animals. Uh, but yeah, so he he is a, an exciting player, certainly. And just keep banging on that. Uh, whatever you're banging on right now. It's yeah, great it's for the audio. An old globe. <laughs> wow. Shakespeare would be proud. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you like that one uh yeah, that but yeah they, that was good yeah i i'm i'm with you i'm i'm a reload and you know they're they they don't even really need to reload too much like like you said offensive line it's expensive to address maybe but there are a lot of good offensive yeah. linemen and then the defensive backs uh, i think you know that's that's a fillable position so i think the the offensive line will be the focus in the short term uh but there's a couple more teams i wanted to talk to you about the New Orleans Saints are a very, very weird team. Uh, they're now five and six until last week. They were in a playoff spot. They are tied with the football team who are also five and six. Like very playoffs are very much in play for them. They have, I think, four straight losses now. They lost to the Falcons. They lost to the Eagles. They lost to the Titans. And they lost uh, to the Bills on Thanksgiving. Right. And that was just a, a blow by any stretch yeah. of your imagination, like <laughs> one of the worst blows we've seen this season. Uh, but then, you know, you look at their how they started the season. Obviously, they had Jameis Winston at the start of the season, but they opened the year with a win against the Packers. They lost to the Panthers the next week. They beat the Pats the week after that, and they lost to the Giants in overtime. So, like, this is a... Even at the start of the season, this was a confusing team. And now that they're, you know, trotting out their fourth string quarterback and have injuries and all this stuff, like they're a weird, weird team. Yeah, I think this one is a pretty clear 
reload or sorry rebuild pardon me the 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 two categories are too similar in name sorry but yeah Jameis Winston as exciting as he can be as time at times very rarely plays winning football I don't think he or Taysom Hill are the long-term answer at quarterback like no one still understands what they're trying to do at Taysom Hill half the time they play him at like tight end or fullback um so I think that quarterback's a major area of need. It doesn't seem like Michael Thomas is someone who you can count on to come back healthy. Uh, hopefully he does because he's a great player when he does. But Drew Brees, I think, covered up a lot of problems for this team as great as Alvin Kamara and Marshawn Lattimore are. Uh, I don't think that there's a lot to build around here in New Orleans. I think that they need to cut their losses and start all over again. Yeah, I actually I didn't even have Michael Thomas written down here because it's been so long since he's yeah, like yeah I, like I forget about him for long stretches of time. Yeah, and I, as you alluded to, the the Taysom Hill situation is frankly baffling. They just signed him to a huge extension, like at minimum it's a four year, forty million contract. That's if he sort of stays in the tight end role, and then if he becomes the starting quarterback, there are these massive incentives as well. It doesn't seem like they they seem like they are, you know, trying to play three-dimensional chess with Taysom Hill, and then the actual results are never really quite up to stuff with that. Uh, not to again plug the ringer, but there's a really great article sort of talking about how he's been used this season and sort of and that was before he even signed the extension, <laughs> and basically laying out all the reasons why he wouldn't justify an extension, and then he ended up receiving a huge one. Uh, but that's definitely worth a read sort of it the the basic thesis of the the whole thing is if he's not starting over Trevor Simeon which we recently learned he will this weekend then like what are we doing <laughs> like if you're yeah. if you're expecting Taysom Hill to be your starting quarterback and he can't beat out Trevor Simeon for the job then that's maybe an issue um, obviously Alvin Kamara is is the big guy that you'd want to get excited about but he is 26, which which is young, but it's not really young for a running back, especially yeah, exactly. one who's seen as much usage as him. So, you know, do you, do you think that, you know, five years down the line, we'll see Camaro playing at like a high level? It seems at the age of 31, how many like how all due respect to Alvin Kamara, but how many running backs do we ever see playing at a high level at the age of 31? I mean, like, when like, was the last, like, Le- I almost feel like he's a, a bit of a Le'Veon Bell in terms of, you know, he has some utility in the receiving game as well. But, you know, Le'Veon Bell, he was only, he was 27 with the Jets that first year, which is crazy to think about. So yeah, Le'Veon Bell is right now only 29. Yeah. So we're talking about Alvin Kamara at 31. As much as I like him and respect him, uh, it's tough to imagine just due to, like you said, how much usage he takes and how much they rely on him. And the fact that he plays running back, which is a position that does not age well. And like year to year, like the top running backs in the league are never the same. It feels Mm -hmm. like Like you can have a guy rush for a thousand yards and be out of the NFL two years later. Like the Mm -hmm. one that comes to mind is Justin Forsett did that for the Ravens. I think in like 2017 ran for a thousand yards and then like could not find a job after the 2018 season running back. So fickle as great as Kamara is five years. It's, I'd be shocked if he's still an elite player. Yeah. Or even like you look at like Philip Lindsay who had a really strong couple of years with Denver and now is like sort of bouncing around the league at this point. But yeah, they, 
they <laughs> i mean they, they almost are not really a team that you can call good like i it would be tough to make a reload case for them they don't have their quarterback situation resolved other than camara they don't have any offensive players to get excited about they have Lattimore. they have uh paulson adebo who is a, a rookie cornerback who's been quite solid starting for them they have marcus williams their starting safety is quite young but like other than Lattimore, those aren't really guys who are really gonna like get you fired up to root for the new look saints so it'll it'll yeah. be interesting to see where they go especially with that hill extension like what do you do with that at the end of the day yeah that was a bold move from them it's like they're trying to bring like the trend in the nba the positionless basketball mm-hmm. trend they're trying to bring that to football it's not gonna work <laughs> like just that just that like i said like trying to play 3d chess and like they are constantly like they they talk like they've outsmarted everyone, but then like in practice, what what have they done? Yeah. Um, there's one more team I want to talk about. We'll do, we'll do a quick hit on this team because this isn't really a team that I think needs to be thinking about reloading or rebuilding right now, but it is a team that has been been under fire lately, shall we say? Uh, the Los Angeles Rams. They have now dropped three straight games. They're seven and four. They're two games back of Arizona for that division title. They are pretty secure in a playoff spot, but you know, if they, they lose a couple more, that could change. Um, Obviously Matthew Stafford, he looked like the MVP early on in the season. He's regressed. Uh, They do have Jacksonville this week. You can sort of see that as a get right game, but they don't have a lot of like easy, write it in the schedule in pen, easy wins coming up. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's worrying a little bit for the uh Rams who early in the year I think we both agreed we're still going to win the NFC West even after the Cardinals started like 7 and 0. I th- don't think we were wrong on that one. I think it's fair to say. No, I'm not saying we jinxed the Rams. <laughs> not. There is no high floor low ceiling jinx. But uh yeah, the Rams, I like the Von Miller addition Odell Beckham's looking good and they're clearly all in on this year so credit to them I still think that come playoff time they'll be a tough tough out uh but yeah definitely worrying the last few weeks yeah they're you know they're almost the the kind of the Dodgers of football this year like you know they're bringing they they bring in all the guys from the other teams the overpaid guys they seem a lot more concerned about what they can do in this year than sort of planning for the future um and, and that Hollywood you know, mentality. And right now they're after looking really, really strong, they're second in their division, much like uh, the Dodgers. But yeah, yeah. As, as I alluded to, they still have to play Arizona on the road. They still have to play Baltimore on the road. They have teams like the Vikings and San Francisco who are like, those are beatable teams, but those are not like, those are not Jacksonville level, like just right, no, right in the no. W teams. And it's also like, they are losing to not that great teams right now. And so you feel even less confident about that. Um, and I think, I think that Robert Woods loss, like almost hasn't been talked about enough in terms of how that's affected their offense. You know, I think Cooper cup, who was looking like one of the best receivers in football to start the season. I think maybe Woods helps a little in terms of drawing some attention away from him. Yeah, they're uh, definitely. I think hoping that OBJ can fill that role. Yeah, and that'll that'll be something to look out for. But just just on a on a one to five scale, how worried do you feel about the Rams right now? 
Ooh, that's a good question. On a one to five scale, with five being the most worried, I would put myself at a 2.5. What's happened the last couple of weeks have been troubling. I don't want to go all the way up to a three, though. I, they might not win the Super Bowl, but I still think they're going to go on a deep playoff run. Yeah, you would like to see them. I mean, if they can get that win at Arizona, that would be obviously a huge game changer. But maybe the, I feel like they're, they're, they're a one game at a time team right now because like yeah. even Jacksonville does not feel like the easiest win in the world anymore. Like they do, they have been, you know, playing teams somewhat tough at times. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to yeah. predict with the NFL. Always any given Sunday. That's what they say. Wow. That's so true. Did you come up with that? I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His airness on any given Sunday, just the type of things we come up with here wow. on the high floor, low ceiling. Shout out to Mitch Bannon. We should have him on Sundays. Uh, no, that would be, that'd be a crossover. That'd be a devastating combination. <laughs> uh, but that is reload or rebuild. Griffin, we have one more like set game. Thank you. We'll we'll bring it back. Uh, maybe we'll do get some uh, maybe some hockey teams or something. Throw them in the mix. Ooh. Uh, but we have one more segment, Griffin. The return of the fun segment. Uh, we've been we've been missing some fun the last few weeks. Yeah, the podcast has been dull, been boring. <laughs> yeah. Every time I listen back to it, I think this is no fun. So I'm glad we're bringing the fun back. Yeah, I'm always listening to it like this sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I do nothing to change it. But, but we we like to be topical on this show, Griffin. Everyone has been talking about this new Beatles Get Back documentary. Uh, again, not to plug, but it's on Disney+. Plus. You have not seen it, correct? We were talking about this before we started recording. Yeah, I would love to see it. I don't have 46 hours or however the hell long it is yeah. to lie around and watch the Beatles. So I'm definitely going to see it at some point. I might have to do it in a couple sittings. But uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to seeing it. I'm a big Beatles fan. I know you are too. Uh, so yeah, and also just the same thing sort of with The Last Dance a while back. It's just that it's cool. Even if you're not the biggest fan, it's just cool to see greatness at work. Yeah, definitely like the the in the studio sort of seeing how their minds operate is certainly one of the most interesting parts. I've I've seen the first two parts. I've watched the first two parts as they came out on those days. And then like, you know, once I was five hours in, I was like, okay, maybe I need a little break. Uh, <laughs> but I will be coming back to the third part, which I've heard is quite good. Uh, and as you alluded to, sort of similar to The Last Dance, it's these previously unseen footage uh, that was recorded for a movie they were shooting gives an in-depth look on a very tumultuous time for the band. So we are going to talk a little bit about the, the sports teams and the moments in sports history that we want to see a, a get back for. Uh, and one that I have here, which, you know, there, there may be some Beatles parallels here. Uh, the 2012-2013 Lakers. Is there is there a nickname for this team yet? I feel like people bring up this is gonna be fun, that famous uh yeah, the Sports Illustrated cover. Yeah, or is it Slam magazine or uh, anyways? No, uh, it was Sports Illustrated, it came in my door. Um, but <laughs> pause. Um, shout out to Mitch Bannon, Sports Illustrated. But yes, uh <laughs> the this Lakers team, obviously the the Dwight Howard year for those who aren't familiar off the top of your head. Uh, much like Get Back, I think that this is a, a story of fraying relationships. Uh, you know, one thing we see a lot of in Get Back is George Harrison's sort of fraught relationship with uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. He has a bit of kid brother syndrome. He wants to be recognized for his artistic input in the band. 
he doesn't really want to be there at times. He walks away from the band at times. So I think that's the Dwight Howard who, you know, was, was put in a position where he was paired with Kobe and, you know, obviously it wasn't a great personality fit. You, if I were being very ungenerous, I could say that maybe Kobe might've ruined his career a little bit <laughs> uh, in terms of what he did to Dwight Howard's mental state, perhaps. Uh, but then, you know, you have Kobe as Paul McCartney. He's the leader who is sort of trying to hold everything together at the expense of his body and his Achilles. Um, the, the metaphor maybe falls apart a little bit here, but I have Steve Nash as the John Lennon where his mind is elsewhere. He was not with the team for a lot of that season. Uh, and then Pau Gasol is the Ringo. He just shows up. He puts the work in. Uh, and obviously, you know, that Lakers team, they end up winning, I think, 47 games. They go out in the first round. So not a, a suboptimal result for them. Yeah, that was I love this pick. I would love to know more. It was a sad, sad state of affairs. Looking back, I think it's it would have been more surprising if it had worked. Although at the time we uh, everyone was all in. Everyone was like, this is going to be a fun cakewalk for them. Now this will be fun. Uh, but yeah, I would love to see, especially I being Canadian as the two of us are, I grew up worshiping at the altar of Steve Nash, as I imagine you probably did too. So I, I eat up any Steve Nash content. So I would absolutely love to see this documentary and be uh, justified in my, what I've always believed in that everyone else sabotaged Steve's championship season. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting that you say that looking back, you know, it's almost seems impossible that it would have worked because I actually was looking at them recently just for unrelated reasons, just for my own satisfaction. And I almost was like, it's hard to point out exactly what's wrong with the roster on paper. Uh, obviously they had a lot of injuries, but like you wouldn't expect a team with Dwight Howard to be a bottom 10 defense, which is what they were. But you know, that that's starting five of Nash, Kobe, Meta World Peace, Gasol and Dwight, like on paper, that's a, a devastating lineup. And, and the, the pieces fit together pretty well too. Maybe not Nash and Kobe, but you know, they, there's a good mixture of different roles and different uh, offense and defense there. True. And I, I do also, I think, tend to forget that yeah, this was Dwight sort of at, at the time, at the height of his powers. Uh, Pau, Kobe, and Nash, obviously a little older, but still all elite players in their own right. Like, Steve Nash was still a great player in his last season in Phoenix. So, yeah, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm hitting a bit of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, some kind of bias. Some kind, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, the hindsight but, copium. But, yes, uh, who, who do you have as your first pick here, Griff? Uh, for my first pick, I'm keeping it topical. I'm going with the current Formula One season. Not a team per se, but uh, I'm not sure if you're super into it, Chris, but this has been one of the best Formula One seasons in history. Lewis Hamilton, the seven-time world champion, is being challenged like he hasn't in years by a young upstart by the name of Max Verstappen and his Red Bull racing team. There's been a lot of drama. There's been They've crashed multiple times, the two championship leaders, the uh, team principles, which is sort of the F1 equivalent of a GM or a head coach, kind of two in one. They have been uh, sniping at each other all year. Christian Horner of Red Bull and Toto Wolf of Mercedes-Benz. So it's been nothing but entertaining, full of drama. There are two races left. The two uh, 
championship contenders are separated by just eight points. So, of course, Formula One does have a good behind-the-scenes documentary already in the Netflix series Drive to Survive, which I know is how a lot of people have become fans in recent years. But I've always found Drive to Survive, as good as it is, doesn't quite have the behind-the-scenes juicy content that I know is there. If we can just grab it. So I would love to see a full no-holds-barred access. How do Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton get along off the track? They seem like they respect each other, which is refreshing, but what do they really say about each other behind closed doors? I'm sure there's been some uh, high-emotion moments where they've been taking snipes. Total Wolf and Christian Horner, who both have just been accusing each other of anything that they could possibly think of all year long. I would love to see a bit of their hypocrisy exposed. I'd love to see how Mercedes is handling its engines, how Red Bull, who had a big lead coming into the end of the season until Mercedes started chipping away and turned up with this new car that seems head and shoulders above the Red Bull. How are they handling that? Are they panicking behind closed doors? So I think that this legendary showdown deserves a legendary documentary. I would love to see truly what's going on. Yeah. Uh, like you said, I'm not intimately familiar with uh, the F1, but I have heard, you know, just from, you know, sports osmosis, because it has been that kind of season where there's been a lot of high drama. I see tweets from Max Verstappen talking about how he's actually being safe and the corner was secretly something else and his turning was normal. Like, <laughs> I just, I, I get, I get these glimpses of it. Uh, but like you said, like the, the, there is that show that exists, but you don't really see from what I've heard, Lewis Hamilton is not on Drive to Survive that much, right? No, and Max Verstappen said he won't be participating directly this season because he doesn't like how they tend to dramatize maybe incidents that weren't so dramatic in nature. So we probably won't get the full scope of it in this year's Drive to Survive. And they also like to typically dedicate one episode per team so uh, whereas this season probably should just be about the championship fight you'll probably get a lot of episodes about the teams at the back of the grid like Haas and Williams so drive to survive as much as I'll enjoy this season it won't fully scratch the itch I'm predicting yeah exactly um so for my other pick I was I had the same thought as you I wanted to stay current I wanted to stay uh with a team from this year uh it's a team a football team in fact uh and, you know to some degree get back is a bit of a, an exercise in futility uh and i think you may know where i'm going if i say futility and football team i'm of course <laughs> referring to the 2021 detroit lions uh still winless this year they picked up that tie against the Steelers, which I'm sure you were uh, you were very happy to see, right? Oh, that brought me a lot of joy. <laughs> yes, this is. Uh, may, I might be tipping my hand a little bit about how I feel about the the Let It Be album that obviously came as a result of the uh, the Get Back sessions, but that album it feels like an album that was very difficult to make, and the results maybe did not bear out the amount of pain and suffering that they went through in order to make it. Do you and not think Let It Be is one of the best Beatles albums? I would certainly not call it one of the best Beatles albums. It would not be in my top three, but let's, let's get into this. I'm interested. Do you do you have a lot of affection for Let It Be? I love, but I think the top, my top three are probably, I would probably put it third. I would probably put uh, Sgt. Pepper number one, as I think most Beatles fans would. And then 
maybe a bit of a hot take. I'm coming in with Revolver at number two, and then Let It Be at three, and I'd probably go Rubber Soul to round out my top four. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I I think that I am just not a big fan of like the sort of shaggier Beatles that they sort of got into in the late 60s. I'm not a huge Let It Be fan. I'm not a huge White Album fan. Um, I mean, there are certainly good songs on there, but like the, the level of bloat and, you know, the seeming lack of uh, an editor <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> uh, they talk in the documentary about, you know, how things sort of changed when Brian Epstein, their longtime manager, passed away. And I think that sort of reveals itself in, in that album. Uh, so, yeah, my, my top three would be in some order. Abbey Road, uh, Revolver, and Rubber Soul. I'm I like Sergeant Pepper for what it is, but it f- kind of feels like Sergeant Pepper is like the practice run for Abbey Road to some extent for me. Mm. It's funny that you say you don't like the late era Beatles, and then your number one is their last album. Sure, but you know there, there's a difference between Abbey Road and Let It Be. They're they're very different albums. I think you would agree. For sure, for sure. Uh, but yes, the <laughs> the Detroit Lions. Uh, you know, at the center of it, you have Jared Goff, who's I think he would be the, the main character. You know, there aren't exactly a lot of Beatles analogs here. Uh, maybe Dan Campbell is the Paul, or is that his name? Dan Campbell, the coach. Campbell uh, is his yeah. name, certainly. Jack yeah, Campbell. Yeah. No, no. Jack yeah. Campbell is beloved. Of course. Um, but yeah, uh, Dan Campbell is beloved as well. Uh, and he's sort of he seems was to be, preseason. <laughs> he the, the, what you always hear about this Lions team is, you know, they play so hard for Dan Campbell. They want to get the win for Dan Campbell, and they never do. So maybe he is uh, is the Paul there, sort of trying to trying to be the glue here and maybe failing a little. Uh, but, but Jared Groff, I don't think there's a Beatles analog for him, but I think he would certainly be the main character of this documentary. I think the, the maybe you could say that Jared Goff's the John and Sean McVay is the Paul and that broken trust between them is uh, sort of spurs on this, this fractured relationship that has yielded this season. I like that a lot. Any, whenever I think of the 2021 Detroit lions, I think of (laughs) Beatles level glory. So (laughs) that I think is the perfect comparison. No, I would love to get a behind the scenes. Look, you always hear about the winning teams. You never hear about the losing teams. That would be very interesting to see. I think. Yes. And I, I, to be clear, I don't feel that, uh, let it be is a 2021 Detroit lions level album. Uh, but (laughs) I certainly say so certainly is one that had some pain involved in it from, from my uh, estimation, at least. Uh, but Griffin, you have one more here. Uh, you're going back to the basketball world, I believe. Yeah. Taking it back to the Get back. hard court. Uh, I want to see a look behind the scenes at the 2016 Oklahoma city thunder. That's mm. the team that blew the three, one lead in the Western conference finals to the golden state warriors. Of course, Kevin Durant left, for those very same Warriors that summer. And so this is the moment where the road from championship contender to basement dweller that they are now starts for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And specifically, I think there are so many intriguing personalities on that team. And if I had to guess, I would say there was late Beatles level dysfunction in that locker room, Mm -hmm. specifically circling around Kevin Durant, who we all know by now is this weird insecure man child of a person i don't think that was quite as common knowledge before he joined the golden state warriors um 
I'm not sure if you read this book, Chris, but to anyone listening, I would highly recommend the book The Victory Machine by Ethan Strauss. He's a uh, reporter who covered the Warriors during and still does, I believe, during the uh, Durant tenure. And it is just an excellent look specifically at the psychology of Kevin Durant. And it really is mind boggling just how insecure he is. So if you're interested in basketball, basketball cannot recommend that book enough. That's just a little side note. But I want to know, like I was saying about the Formula One season, I want to know everything. How did Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook really get along when nobody was watching? Uh, how did characters like Serge Ibaka, Stephen Adams, and Nick Collison show? Like, those are all pretty stable guys. Uh, so if we had to play the Beatles game, I would say Kevin Durant, probably John, and then we'll give Russ the Paul. I think they're like no one else could be Paul and John. It had to be KD and Russ. And so I think those uh, suit those well. But then we've also got weird figures in that locker room, like Dion Waiters and uh, Tucker Carlson contributor, Ennis Cantor. Mm, so big freedom. Um, yeah, <laughs> Ennis Cantor freedom, pardon me. So I think that they must have had some sort of impact on the locker room, whether for good or for bad. How did Billy Donovan handle all of that? Mm. So if I had to give out the rest of the roles, I want to give Stephen Adams Ringo and Serge Ibaka, George Harrison, Stephen Adams, the guy who's there, he shows up, he stabilizes, he does his job, and he does it very, very well. Serge Ibaka may be sort of like, hey, I can be an all-star too if I just got out from under these guys' shadows. So I think that fits the George pretty well from what we saw in Get Back. I, I'm really excited to see this fake documentary. I want to know exactly how crazy Kevin Durant is and how Russell Westbrook only encouraged it. Yeah, I think for my money, this Thunder team, like from, you know, 2008 until this year are like one of the more interesting teams of like maybe the last like 30 years. Yeah. In, just in terms of like the weirdness of their dynamics and the space that they occupied in the NBA landscape. I, I'm always fascinated by them. I think I know because I think KD as John is like a great, a great point where it's like, he is, you know, maybe he is the MVP, but also like has all so many like idiosyncrasies and insecurities and everything wrapped up in that, which sort of affected, uh, affected the ultimate turnout of that team. I, mm. I think I know your answer. I have a suspicion, but are, are you a John or a Paul or, I'm a Paul or another guy, member? Personally, I, I mean, I, if I had to choose for it, I'm a big Ringo guy, but no, I, as much as I love John's Beatles songs and they're obviously great, I'm not trying to take that away. I do really love Paul, his voice and his songwriting, I think are unmatched maybe by anyone ever. So I'm, I'm more of a Paul than a John. Is that, is that what you had me pegged as? I definitely had you pegged as a Paul. I'm a Paul as well. Um, I think I would be the John of our pairing though. Uh, I'm, I'm more of an antagonist. Um, yeah, you'd, you'd like to uh, get like, I'm just over here talking about I love you, you love me, singing <laughs> my silly love songs, and you're trying to get my goat talking about across the universe <laughs> and things like that. Exactly. And I, I but thought of it, uh, I wanted to bring it up earlier, and I won't spoil it, but there's a great, there's a conversation between John and Paul that is, uh, shall we say, surreptitiously recorded. Uh, during get back and i won't say any more than that but it's a very it's a it's a great moment so i would love the that to get that treatment uh of a uh a kd and westbrook conversation oh that would be excellent 
Yeah. Um, but that is going to do it for our Beatles Get Back sports documentaries. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Griffin, quite frankly, another great app. Yeah, I mean, I'm not afraid to say it. We are amazing <laughs> at this. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. I thought another big thanks to Mitch for coming on. Thanks to you for listening. Please, if you're not a regular listener, follow us on Spotify. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, tweet at us at HFLC Podcast. Uh, trying to get that a little more active. I think next week we're going to come at you guys with a Christmas special. Unless, of course, my manager right. still holds off on the Christmas music. But that uh, I think we're really excited for. I think the Halloween special, personally, I thought that was one of our best episodes, Chris. So I'm hoping we can recapture that magic at the most magical time of year. Yes. Fingers crossed that uh, that the boycott will be lifted in time for that because I'm very excited about that. Uh, you can, of course, follow Griffin at GriffinPorter97. You can follow me at Jan. It's the word chow, the word son, like someone's child, and J-A-N. Uh, and as Griffin said, uh, like and subscribe and do all those things and uh, yeah, tell your friends tell your family yeah for Christmas why not get someone a subscription to High Floor Lucy <laughs> yeah it's which very, is free it's highly Perfect affordable gift. you can get them an iPod Nano and they could download it from iTunes uh, things of that nature um, but until next time keep your floors high and your ceilings low we will see you soon